Welcome to the Early Career Moves Podcast, the career strategy podcast for BIPOC folks in their 20s and 30s trying to figure out their next career move. I'm your host, Priscilla Weninger Bolcha, Latinx career coach, former talent recruiter, and human capital management consultant. Each Friday, I'll share an actionable tip to help you on your career change journey so that you can job search with confidence, land amazing job offers, and get on with your life. Let's get started. Thank you so much, Linda, for being here with us today. I'm really happy to have you on the show today to talk about your really cool career path as a literary agent in the book publishing world. I'm assuming you've been in New York most of your life. Is that right? Yes, my whole life, except for a stint in Jersey, which is pretty much New York. So. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. So we definitely want to hear about that career path, especially as a Latina. So why don't we start there? Share a little bit with us about like your own background, how you identify your pronouns, anything else that we should just know about you personally? Yeah. Cisgender woman. My pronouns are she, her. I, you know, my parents, actually my grandparents are from Puerto Rico and my parents grew up in the South Bronx. So very Puerto Rican in that way. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, cool. I know you went to Cornell and you majored in communications, right? That's right. Tell us a little bit about like, were you always when, as you were growing up, like loved reading, loved writing, like you knew that was something you wanted to do in college or not really? Definitely not. I think like pretty much everyone in publishing loved books. Always, always. Yes. Which ironic because you do less reading when you work in publishing, like at least less fun reading that is not client based. But yeah, I always love to read and write. And I never really knew that it was a career. I never had met any authors. I didn't know that was a thing. It just felt, oh, this is a book, but I never thought about the journey, you know, the journey it takes to make a book and who was involved in it. I actually learned about it uh, actually in college, actually, as a potential career. Yeah. And I've been looking, I've been always trying to figure out what I want to do, right? So I always wanted to do something practical, something that was money-making just because it was a thing mm-hmm. I thought about. Like, you, you know, I didn't grow up poor. You know, we were very, I was privileged in that my parents were able to pay for college and they put me in private schools. They worked so hard. They still do. And again, privilege is a thing. I grew up in New York. So all of that was there, but I never realized it was there. So when I graduated or when I was going to graduate from college, my mom, and she worked in banking, she worked her way up from like a teller position and she became VP and all that stuff. But she was friends with this other woman, a woman of color. And her daughter had gone to Cornell and she was like 10 years older than I was. So I was still on campus at the time. And they said, hey, our daughter should meet and set up, you know, set up a play date for us almost. So they, you know, I did meet her. She is amazing. Still, we still, we dropped off the pandemic, but she's the one who actually helped me get my first job in a sense, because she said, Linda, like she got to know me. We became friends. She said, you like books. Why don't you think of publishing? And she was a big time HR person at Morgan Stanley. And she said, oh, I was on this panel with diversity recruiters and someone from Penguin, the book publisher was on there. You should reach out to her. And that's where it started. Wow. Okay. So this is when you were in college. Yes. You had this conversation with her and she helped you get your first job out of college. Yeah. Because when she put me in touch with that eight, that recruiter. Her name is Francine Rosado, lovely woman. And I was going to interview for like an editor job because everybody, when you think of publishing, think of editors, right? So yeah. 
before I was going to actually go in for the interview, she calls and said, I'm sorry, it was taken internally, which is very common, right? I think with any job, yeah. right? So she said, but there's this other job. And she said something called reprint. It's in reprints, which I didn't know what that was, right? And she's like, you want to come for it? I'm like, yes, I do. I do want to do that. I just took the opportunity. And then when I went in, the person that I was interviewing under, who was a manager, and she was in her late 20s. And she was also a Puerto Rican from the Bronx. Just interestingly, randomly, we hit it off really well. And it was so, I got lucky. And I got that job almost on the spot. And, and And even after that, it wasn't smooth sailing because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I said to myself, I like this, but is this it? You know, you come out of college, is this, this is where I am now? Is this what I'm going to do forever? And so I actually wound up leaving after a year because I thought maybe I should just do law school. That's the thing. And I did not do law school. (laughs) Thank goodness for me, it just would not have been a good fit, but I missed publishing and I figured, well, it was so easy to get that job. I was very young and naive, obviously. And then it was the, (laughs) the recession and nobody wanted me and it was tough to get a job. So I actually went backwards and I took internships, much of them unpaid for a couple of years. And I, it worked out, it was actually fortuitous because of what I do now, but I just took what they would give me. So I was almost yeah. at every publisher, <laughs> Random House, yeah. Simon & Schuster, Penguin, until um, even a literary agency, which is what planted that seed until I wound up working at Random House. And that was, of course, before I started agenting. But yeah, it was wow. a lot of a lot of push and pull. And even when I got to Random House, I was doing marketing, children's marketing. Okay. And not something I wanted to do per se, but I was like, well, it's Random House. And I loved my time there. And then I said, well, they're paying for schooling. So I just took advantage of everything I could. So I said, let me get my MFA in writing. I'll do that. And they helped pay for it. And I didn't have to leave my job. I could work because I needed money. Though during that time, I was still trying to get into editorial and it was really tough. And I was at the time, I think it was in my late 20s. And they kept saying I was old, <laughs> old for restarting, right? You get pigeonholed in your career. How can you like, be old? I know it is absurd. Like they did. I said, look, I'm willing. Cause you know, you know, the editors internally, I'm like, Hey, I'll start as an assistant. I don't want to, but I would do it. But I, they were looking for people dewy eyed and fresh out of college. And is it that, that they want to underpay people? Is I think it's a combination, it? right? It is definitely a combination because definitely underpay. I said, hey, I'll take a pay cut, but they knew and they weren't wrong entirely. I would have put in the time, but you hit a certain age, right? Where you're not going to put up. I'm not saying <laughs> you're not going to put up with as much, right? So they want somebody to assist them far longer than it should be, right? You should assist a person a couple of years, but some of those assistants were there five, six, seven, eight years without moving up at all. So I realized, you know what? I had done an internship at this agency called Writer's House and they represented really big people. Oh my gosh, the biggest people. And then I was like, you know, I, I, there's more flexibility there. So then I just reached out to, because it's constant outreach. So Mm -hmm. I reached out to a bunch of agents that I'd sort of known and most of them I didn't. And I asked for advice and they were very kind and wonderful. And eventually I, you know, met someone and we just clicked and I wound up at her agency and I was there for a couple of years and then I moved to my current agency. And it, I just, it's funny how it turns out, right? All the things that I'd learned over those years of trying to get back in have been very useful to me, but 
hindsight is 2020. Cause at the time I just felt like each new job I took, I was like the world's oldest intern. That <laughs> <laughs> always felt like that. But uh, I think it was something that taught me a lot and helped me be, you know, helped me be less arrogant and just it's informed everything I do now. So I really wouldn't change that trajectory. Yeah. Okay. So I have some, maybe, I don't know if it's misconceptions, but it's like preconceived notions that I have about this world. So I would love to get your take on it. Sure. So one is that I'm assuming this is very much like a who you know type of industry Mm. where like you actually had an in a little bit, like you knew someone in the industry, you were able to get in. Has that been your experience where it's like almost very like, there's a lot of nepotism, like everyone knows each other. You are not incorrect. (laughs) I wish I could say no, (laughs) no, you were, you know, what's funny. The, everything I've ever gotten has been through at least harassing someone. <laughs> it's just it, whether I knew them or not, they eventually got to know me. But in the beginning, absolutely. I had that advantage of, of you know, my Cornell alum and then just easing the way in. And what was, but what was interesting, I remember was that my first job, I was working at Penguin on the adult side with adult books. And interestingly, I did get, cause I'd applied to so many jobs and I didn't know any of them. They were just through the portals, which was like sending things into ether. And someone did call me. And of course I was already working. So that, but that's like a shot in the dark. Everything has been through knowing somebody. And unfortunately that does limit the diversity of the industry as with any industry, I imagine, because people like to hire whom they know and whom they view as, oh, like me. Yeah, I see a lot of parallels with like politics in DC. You definitely see that a lot. And then the Hollywood, like music industry as well. So yeah, it sounds like that is definitely like you can't almost afford to be afraid to reach out to people, right? Like you couldn't, you didn't have the luxury of that. No, I used to be very shy about it. My mom was the go-getter. And I remember she was the one who got me my first internship, which was pre-publishing, it was like MTV or something, but she knew because she was always a go-getter. She was <laughs> friends with this guy named, oh my God, I know his last name was like Mejia. All the black and brown people bought, you know, like band together, get their people jobs or something. But his daughter was working at MTV and she was looking for an intern. And she, my mom was like, hey, you should talk to my daughter. And then that's how I got that too. And wow. I remember being at that internship and being able, you have to go through the process, the interview process, but it was a little embarrassing because it was like, okay, I knew somebody to help me get in here. Yeah. But I remember, I think it was like day one of the internship where the internship supervisor said, hey, just to clear things up in case anyone's embarrassed by how they got this internship, everybody raised their hands if you knew somebody to get in here. We all raised our hands. <laughs> everybody. There was not a single person. Out of the 20. And this is and that MTV? was just that. And that was MTV. That was for <laughs> an internship in development with Noggin in the end with the kids, like the really kitty stuff. Um, so it was fun because I got to watch Degrassi <laughs> and all that stuff during the summer. But yeah, everybody. And that really stuck with me that you just. That's huge. That's like jarring. Yeah. yeah. Like you realize you really have to, you really have to advocate for yourself. My mom always said, is very old school. You always need a godfather. You always need somebody to uplift. And that's why I always think too, even with 
the role that I take on, I do provide mentorship to a lot of people because I think it's our duty, right? We were helped and I just believe in paying it forward. Like I am not someone who closes the door behind me. Yeah, I love that. You know, getting into the next thing, which my other assumption was that it's not very diverse, that it's probably very white. A lot of very, I would assume, very privileged people are in this space where money's not as big of a concern. And I'm assuming that's why the wages are so low. Is that, was that your experience? Yes, definitely that. Things have improved though. By far, not nearly there yet. Yeah. But yeah, when I was starting in 2005, my starting salary, and again, got it, nobody should be paid that amount of money that I got. But I had just graduated from college. And again, even without college, you should be paid more than what I got paid. It was 28500 starting, you know, full time. I remember I did 12 hour days and my supervisor was amazing. She told me, log your hours. You should be getting paid overtime. But when it went up to the you know VP level, the VP didn't like that I was logging so many hours, but we were severely understaffed. There was just no way around it. She said, just yeah. don't do overtime. But what she meant was don't log them, right? Because you had to, you know, I know if I didn't get the work done, like that's what you're saying because I knew this VP wanted the work done. There was no, it's not like she was saying, we're going to help you. She said, no, just don't don't work late, which was not realistic. (laughs) So in the end, I didn't log hours. I did not and definitely worked at least 12 hour days, you know, and the wages have increased a little, or a lot, but no, not really. Right now, I don't know if you knew that there was a strike. HarperCollins was striking recently, mm. and they were pushing for wages that started at $50,000 for entry level. And they basically got it. I'm really happy to say there were some terms they had to deal with, but yeah, that recently was settled like a week ago. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Yeah. 18 years later. <laughs> I know. Right. And in New York, which is so frustrating that you have to, for the most part, things have gone somewhat remote. Publishing is still figuring out how to do with that. And I hope that it shifts and changes so that people will can be hired from anywhere. But yeah. at this point, it's still a majority New York based. Yeah. And that does limit diversity. It's something they're going to have to reckon with. And if they insist on keeping people in New York, they're just going to have to pay more. They can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. I definitely know trust fund babies. I wish I could say I was one of them, but definitely not a trust fund baby. But I always tell people, I acknowledge my privilege. My parents worked hard and it doesn't mean that other people haven't, but they were lucky that their hard work yielded money, right? I wasn't Mm -hmm. wealthy, but I was... And I was talking this. Okay. So this reminds me of a conversation I had where I was going to leave my salary at Random House, which was not substantial. I think at the time it was like 45,000, but I was going to wanting to move into agenting, which would have been just working off of commission. So zero salary. And I knew I would have to do like side jobs, like work at restaurants and things like that to just pay the bills and get paid very little. But this girl who is also Latina, she said, oh, yeah, no, but you know how it is. Like when you're going to do great, Linda, besides, we know how it is to struggle. Like we've been there, we've been poor. And I felt so embarrassed because, again, I was never wealthy, but I never struggled in that way. Yeah. Uh, but I, that's why I do like to acknowledge my privilege, because when I was working at, you know, in publishing all those years and even the brief period when I wasn't working at all, I was trying to figure, get my crap together. I was at home and I moved out maybe a couple of months before I turned 30. And my parents yeah. are still trying to get me back home, but that's a whole other thing. 
I love it. If it was up to them, we would just be there forever. We'd be there forever. My parents said, well, if you want to pay rent, you know, if you want to move out and you want to pay rent, you can just pay rent here. I'm like, no, that's not why I moved out. They thought they wanted to say, I just wanted to give money away. Like, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, those like rent controlled (laughs) apartments in New York that are owned by a lot of, you know, Latinx families and everything. Yeah. That's real. That is generational wealth right there. Yeah. yeah. And, And my parents, when they started out, they were in debt. They were severely in debt. And my mom, I would never have been able to do this. She was really young in her 20s. I'm 40. And I still could not wrap my head around buying it. Of course, prices are not the same as what they were. But she bought a house and figured things out and got their credit, you know, on par. And yeah, I don't know how she did that considering where they started. You know, I already started at a certain level compared to where they started. Yeah, no, I appreciate you acknowledging that. I think like it's very important in these conversations to talk about intersectionality and yeah, like socioeconomic status really like in some ways is almost like a more powerful force a little bit than like our cultural heritage and things like that. So I think that's definitely dead on. So for making money, like going back to the money topic, where is the money in this industry? (laughs) Who is making the money and what does that even look like? Oh man. So I would say celebrities are definitely making a lot of money. <laughs> They're definitely like making- Harry. What's his name? Prince Harry. Oh my God. I don't even know how, like, I forgot what the advance, even whatever they leaked up, but it was, oof. Yeah. Anyone who's a celebrity that gets a book deal, like for the most part, they'll make bank. That's for sure. Nonfiction is a good, again, it's, is it a guarantee of success? No, but you get it at least for the most part, if you're with a solid publisher, you can get decent money. You can get decent money. And then everything who, else. Like the authors or the agents? Oh, 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 well, ultimately, I feel like who's making the money? Yeah, definitely the head honchos at the publishing houses, right? I think for <laughs> sure. Some agents are making bank, definitely. Yeah, I would say it's definitely the uh, authors and illustrators, unless they're very established and they happen to be super successful already, it's really hard. It's really hard for them. It's become less likely the way things are structured that you can make a living full-time as an author, as a, as an author. Right. And that varies. And by that, I like to specify full-time, right? Because someone can make a living with a creative life where like, you're not just going to generally, unless you get really lucky or have a trust fund, be able to just sit down and write a book and then wait and then write your next book and write your next book and just make money that way. If you're a working author, you have to be making visits to schools and to books. Like you're constantly doing talks. A lot of them teach a lot. You know, there are always these side hustles you're doing all together with writing, but it's pretty rare unless they already have a cushy setup that they're going to be focused on writing. Yeah, it's pretty rare. It's just the payments are so hard and they have different genres, you know, like I keep thinking of like romance and then the way that it's become a harder sell these days for a romance novel, unless you're already established and you can make money self-publishing, but even then it's harder these days because there's just been a glut of it. There's so many people self-publishing and I love the idea of self-publishing, but I always tell people, you have to know what you're doing. Treat it like a business. Don't just go, I'm going to throw it up out there because somebody's going to buy it. Because if you do that and you want to become traditionally published, and again, you don't have to be traditionally published, but if your goal is to be traditionally published by a big house, 
it's easier if you're a debut, as opposed to you threw a book out there and you didn't do anything with it. And of course, it's not going to do well. So then when a publisher is going to look at your sales, your past sales, if you're writing within the same, like if you published, if you self-publish a romance and you're trying to pitch a romance now, they're going to look at your sales and go, you didn't do well. You're not telling us to take a chance on you. And that speaks not at all to the quality of your work. It's just bad luck and not enough marketing. Yeah, And payments are split too. So what when you get paid, right? So let's say you're lucky, you make 50, let's say you get a $50,000 offer, which is a pretty decent offer. You don't just get a check for $50,000. Like there are split amounts. Like when you sign the contract, you'll get a portion of it. When you deliver the manuscript, you get a portion of it. And then sometimes if it's a lot more money than 50,000, they'll split it into a payment that you get when the book is published. So that's a long waiting period, especially if your book yeah. takes years to come out. But what happened during the pandemic, publishers got scared and they wanted to hold on to the money longer. So they started extending payments. They added another split. So instead of just ending payments when the book is published, they started trying to pay people a year or so after the book was published, um, oh, wow. which is annoying. And they kept telling us, well, it's just for the pandemic, just for the pandemic. But we knew they would try to keep it if they could. So right the last year we've been pushing back and saying, oh no, you said it's just for the pandemic. You're going to go back to what it was. So a lot of them have been able to push it back, but well, all those things and publishers are having record years. They're saying it like during the pandemic, they made bank so yeah, much. And I feel like everyone was reading or listening to books. Yeah. You know? Audiobooks, yes, really exploded in such a big way. So the exact the C-suite <laughs> publishing and some agents definitely are making a ton of money. And it's just not trickling down to their staff or to writers and illustrators the same way, or in mm-hmm. some agents who are not necessarily the level of people who represent, you know, Stephen King or something. Yeah. So a literary agent, like you said, doesn't actually get paid a salary. They have to go like convince someone to rep to represent them. Is that kind of how it works? And then if they are successful, they get a commission. Yeah. So good question. There are some who get paid a salary, not very many. That tends to be with massive literary agencies like ICM or Writer's House, CA, that they're all together talent agencies or just a really massive, almost corporate-like literary agency. But they're not a ton of those. Most of the agencies are boutique agencies that they're successful, but they're smaller. They're maybe a crew of up to 12 people at the most. I know our agency is six people. Some are like two people. And again, it has nothing to do with the success of their clients. Like our agency represents Rick Brennan, the Percy Jackson series, and some other amazing people but we like to keep it small. And so when you have a boutique agency, generally they'll pay you on commission, right? So, and there are other ways. There's another way where they pay you if you can negotiate it, what they call a draw, which means it's like an advance in a sense. So they'll estimate, well, you might make, I don't know, $40,000 this year worth of you know your commission sales. So we'll pay you, but you have to earn it back, which I find much more stressful. So most people are commissioned, which is what I am. So when I get a client, when I offer representation to a client and then they agree to work with me and we celebrate, I never, you know, a legitimate agent should never charge a client upfront. That means they are not a true agent. I only get paid when I sell my client's book. So then the publisher cuts the check, gets sent to the agency, and then the agency gets their 15% 
and then the client gets 85. And then even with me, I get a split between my agency of that 15%. So I don't get the full 15. Yeah. You could operate independently, but that's rare or that's harder. It's harder. It depends on what you want to do. So there are some people who do go out on their own and do it wonderfully. And they have the experience and the wherewithal and the interest to do it. But I don't know, me personally, I just see it for me. I don't know if I want to do that. Like it, I don't know if I want to have my own agency. I'm not saying that would never be a thing, but it's very unlikely. I like my agency. I like not having to deal with the back end stuff. Like I just, I, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur in, like in other ways, but I just don't have the interest. And also I like the back and forth and the wealth of knowledge there, like the head of the agency. So we have two co-heads. One is this woman named Nancy Galt who had founded the agency and she's been in publishing for 40 years, like the wealth of knowledge. And her co-agency head was an assistant she had for many years who now is a partner and she's Latina. So like, I love that we have a lot of black and brown people in our agency and they're brilliant and experienced. I wouldn't trade that. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So in terms of, you know, people of color, authors, and <clears throat> just, I don't know, do you feel like that the industry is doing a better job of finding more diverse voices and authors in this space? Like, have you seen a shift in, in the time that you've been in the industry? I have seen a shift. There have definitely been a lot of moves to bring in more diverse talent there. If you're seeing the best sour list, it's shifted in that direction. Not enough, but there are a lot more. I would say that it really started to change around 2014 with the beginning, the inception of We Need Diverse Books. And We Need Diverse Books is a nonprofit organization that advocates for, they started with children's books and now they've advanced to adult books as well. So it's both children's and adult, but it's focusing on bringing those diverse voices. And they started out as a hashtag on Twitter. So because of that, they yielded conversation. And the reason that started was because there was this um, thing called BEA, which is called Book Expo, which is a trade industry thing. And there was a panel, I'm already forgetting, but there was a panel and it was all white <laughs> and there was Grumpy Cat. So that's as diverse as it got. It was like all these white people and Grumpy Cat. And then people Wait, got what's very upset. Grumpy Cat? <laughs> Do you remember Grumpy Cat? Oh my gosh, Grumpy Cat. Like I'll just send you an image of Grumpy Cat. He was this exotic short hair cat that just had this frown. And he was like this, like at the time, social media famous cat. (laughs) Now they have Doug the Pug and all this stuff. But Grumpy Cat was like super big (laughs) at the time and way more likely to be put into a panel than, you know, a a Hispanic or, you know, anyone like that. Yeah. Anyone Latina, black, brown, whatever. So Grumpy Cat was the one. And then people got upset about it, understandably. They started that organization. So anyway, there happened, you know, you had Angie. I remember at the time when Angie Thomas with The Hate You Give, when she had her massive book deal. Yeah. And I remember at the time when it was sold, we were all so nervous because we knew that they invested, the publisher invested a lot of money into it. And if Angie's book wasn't successful, thank God it was, but we knew if it didn't do well, then publishers are going to say, oh, well, black stories are just not a thing, which makes no sense because I know plenty of white stories that have not been successful. They don't go, eh, nobody wants white people's stories. (laughs) But they would have said black shooting story, ah, we're good. So thank goodness she just blew up and 
because of her and other people that have paved the way, many successes. But now the conversation has shifted to, okay, how do we continue to increase it? How do we get beyond the one story narrative of if it's black, it's slavery or shooting. And then if it's Latina, it's immigration, like shifting that to just, all right. Jalapeno as this author said, where's our Mexican catness, right? We need stuff like that. We're getting more stuff. But a big part of the conversation is bringing in diverse people into the industry as agents and editors and all that, because otherwise it's not going to last. You're just going to have the same people in the same room making the same decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So cool. I feel like, so you've been in this space now, what, how many, like many years now? Like I about would almost 18 on a, with the whole journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. yeah. So what has kept you here? Because at any point, and I'm assuming at different points, you were like, yeah. maybe, like you said, like, maybe I'll go to law school or maybe yeah. I'll do something else. Obviously, something has kept you here. So what yeah. is that? What is that oh, passion man. or love or what yeah. is it? Yeah, there, man, there's so many moments I definitely want to give up. And even now, you know, I think in the recent years, I joke with my sister, I'm like, should I still go back to law school? Which no, I do not <laughs> want to go back to law school. But there are moments where you're like, wait, why am I doing this again? And I know for me, I would have been foolish if I only did it for the money. You hope money will come, but yes, but there are definitely easier ways to make money. So it's definitely not money, but it really is in the end, being able to see a book that you help shepherd into the world. And there's something special about that. And a lot of my people on my list and on my colleagues list and many other friends I have in the industries list that with more diversity, those books are just so beautiful. And my clients will sometimes forward me letters from children that say, oh my, like one of my, colleague, she's Latina. No, my clients, she's Latina. And she wrote a book. And in the care, one of the characters was this little black girl who was like cheerful and sweet and fun. And it made me so sad and that happy, but sad. I don't know where this little black girl wrote a letter saying, Oh my God, like this girl is black and she's happy. You know, like she's not this angry. I'm just like, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. You know, I was talking to a client today I had lunch with and her daughter's half Korean. And she just discovered this book series that she was like, oh my God, she's half Korean too. And I'm so excited. Like all those little things. Even for me, I didn't realize there was a problem in the industry at first, because you're in the early 2000s, you're swimming in the same water. Mm -hmm. And I was in my MFA program and a writer, an instructor asked me, hey, so when you write, is your main character Latina? And I was like, no, why would I like, why would I do that? It's not marketable. And it's funny because no one told me that. No one said to me at Random House or Penguin, all the places, it's not marketable, but clearly there's something there, right? That Mm -hmm. would I think that over time I realized, oh, wow, we have a diversity problem, which is obvious, but I just didn't realize it. Yeah. I think it's just like the default, right? It's almost like Disney movies. You know, we didn't really have a like a princess who was, you know, Latina or Hispanic or anything. And so for do we even have one now? I think now who do we there, have? There's a I think it was like a directed movie thing. I forgot the was it <laughs> Princess Sophie or somebody. I forget who there was someone. There's somebody and I forget. And it wasn't even a big deal. Right? Don't even think yeah. about it because you don't it's not even in your consciousness. And I, you know now with the Little Mermaid being remade with is it Hallie? I ruined her name. It's Steph was it 
Is it oh God. Halle Bailey? I, I think that's that's might be right, actually. Which yeah. people were saying, it's not Halle Berry. I'm like, no, it's not Halle Berry. But <laughs> but she asked for Halle it with that name. <laughs> so, yeah, I keep wanting her name. But oh, when I saw that image and they the they showed her singing and just, yeah. I was excited. And like little girls and like little yeah. girls seeing themselves in that. It's so special. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can't, I don't even remember when that movie comes out, but I imagine it's just going to be so well-received. Yeah. yeah, by the right people. <laughs> we know that people had opinions about it, so For without sure. even seeing it, but yeah, seeing those like on TikTok, seeing those little girls mm-hmm. be so excited. It's easy to take things for granted sometimes, but yeah, I think that's why they're just there's so many people that were influencing, and I just want things to change. And I know it's not someone asked me and she was an older white lady, very lovely. And she said, Hey, so everything fixed now. And I hope she was being a little facetious, but she was like, it looks good. Right. And I'm like, you know, I don't expect it to be fixed in my lifetime. There's no fixing. This industry has been around decades and decades. It's a slow moving machine. I am glad that we are making progress, but we have a long way to go. No question. Okay. So I definitely wanted to ask you, are there Maybe what is one of your favorite books that you're just, I know that's like such a cliche. That's hard because I know (laughs) that's a hard one. I'm the worst at favorites. (laughs) That's a, oh man. Or I know that one is bad, but I can talk about genres. (laughs) Or what's like a recent book, maybe in 2022. I could do that. I could do that. Okay. (laughs) Because actually when the pandemic, sadly, I went through a reading slump, which, you know, it it was so tough. And And plus, like I said, I think I said this in our early conversation that it is ironic that we get into the industry because we love to read, but we don't get to read as much now in the industry, at least for fun. But I started this year, I plan to read at least 50 books, so one a week at least. And one I read is by Melinda Lowe, Last Night at the Telegraph Club. It's a young adult historical fiction LGBTQ romance. So good. Yeah, it's about this teenage girl who lives in San Francisco in the 1950s. And at the time, there was the Red Scare going on and the threat of citizenship being taken away from her family because of that. And she's realizing that she might be queer and falling in love with another, with a classmate and them trying to hide their love. It was so good. And it was, I feel like if it didn't, I think it won the National Book Award or was at least nominated. It won so many awards. I would recommend that to anybody. Last night at the Telegraph Club. So Okay, I will check that out. I love that. And I take that seriously. Very Mm -hmm. cool. Very good. Okay. So last question for you. If someone's listening to this episode and they're like, they know someone that wants to break into this industry, or maybe they're thinking about it. What is like the number one piece of advice you would give them or maybe give yourself when you were first entering this world? One piece of advice besides networking, but that's what people would say. I would say you want to surround yourself with people who will uplift you truly because Life in general is hard and publishing is especially hard and you really need those people to bolster you, right? You need, you don't, it doesn't mean that people can't be practical for sure, but having naysayers in your life can be very difficult. Even when I have clients, even when they're successful, it doesn't get easier, right? Because the bar moves constantly. Just surround yourself with as many positive uplifting people as possible to help you like that way. 
Awesome. If someone wants to get in touch with you and potentially work with you, how do, how can they do that? Sure. I've been temporarily close to queries, but I want to open up, let's say in a month or two, if I'm really good, 2023 is the year, but I do announce it on my website and on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Again, I lurk there. I'm not as good at it, but <laughs> at Linda Random, that's Linda Random, like Random House where I used to work because I was lazy and choosing a name or go to lindacamacho.com. Um, and that's L-I-N-D-A-C-A-M-A-C-H-O.com. And I'm also going to be hosting, interestingly, this is like a thing that happened within the past few weeks, a writing workshop in Tuscany in the fall. So I am super what? excited about, oh I know, like God. I've done so many writing workshops and I'm going to be doing it with another agent. And we're going to talk about writing and, you know, ask us all of the publishing questions and stuff, which I answer some of those on my LinkedIn profile too, but if you want to come to Tuscany in the fall, I'll have information on my website too. Yeah, why not? It's Tuscany, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, now I get why you're still in this industry. Yeah, that part's fun. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely fun. <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah. thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise. Um, This is a conversation that, you know, it's it seems like very niche, but I do think there's a lot of people in the world that have curiosity about it. And don't necessarily have access to anyone in this world because it is, it does seem very like closed and like you got to know someone. So I really appreciate this. Like, I really think this episode is going to reach people who need to hear this message. So thank you for that. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. Make sure you head over to ecmpodcast.com slash free course and sign up for my free job search training course. I teach you the three things that you need to know before you go into a job search process. My goal is to help you change careers with confidence and ease so you can move on with your life. I'll see you next week.